Let's pray and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would make clear to us your intent in this passage. Pray that um, anywhere I would misstep, that you would cause people to forget. We ask that where your word is taught faithfully, it would be remembered and submitted to. Pray that you would make the presence of your Holy Spirit among us tangible this morning. Help us to recognize that you are doing something significant when church gathers to worship you. Lord, we, we, we love you. You are great and you are faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 11 of chapter 2. We'll read on down to verse 22 and then pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. Or I guess last week. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from citizenship in Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who makes both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This passage is centered on the corporate nature of the people of God. And so if you look at the first 10 verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians, we're being told kind of how we were saved. We, we were dead in sins, and then God made us alive together with Christ. And so in verses 11 through 22, Paul is turning his attention to this horizontal dimension of our salvation, right? He's saying salvation is certainly, it's vertical. You are made right with God, but it's also horizontal. You're made right with God's people, with one another. And he says, you Gentiles and you Jews, you were formally divided against you, against one another. I had set up these laws these ceremonial laws make it really evident that my people were to be a wholly distinct people. They were a nation under themselves. 
But now, what Christ has done in taking these two groups that were at odds with one another is He has fulfilled the law and thus made it moot. He has abolished it by breaking down the dividing wall of hostility and did it in His flesh. So what Paul is saying is that when Jesus dies on the cross for sins, He fulfills all the requirements of the law. So that whoever trusts in Christ has kind of completed the law. That they get all the blessings that are due to Jesus. And Jesus took all the curses that were due to them. And the result is peace with God. Remember we talked about the reason that blood is so central to the Christian faith is because blood is the means by which God has ordained that sin would be dealt with. That atonement for sin could be made. And so it is blood that ransoms us from the hell that we deserve because we've disobeyed God. And it's blood that purifies us. It cleans us. It makes us pure and right before God. You see this passage is just it's wet with blood. Right? You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He tore down the wall in His flesh. That's an allusion to the cross. And He has made Jew and Gentile both one new man. So making peace, so that he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. And so we see that no one is right with God by virtue of their ethnicity or the nation to which they belong. The only thing that makes someone right with God is their faith in Jesus Christ. It's only by the blood of Christ that we can come near to God, that we can have our sins forgiven. It's only through the blood of Christ that we can have peace with God and with one another. It is this wonderful message of peace, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus was crucified for sins and raised for the justification of all who would repent of sin and believe in Him. It's this message that is preached here and other churches across the globe every Sunday. It is the message of peace. And it is through this message of peace that those who are as far off from God as they could possibly be, those without any revelation from God, and those who were maybe like the Jews, maybe grew up in church, had some revelation from God, knew a little bit about Christianity, it's, it's this way that both of these groups can be made right with God. Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious. The gospel really is good news. My, my non-Christian friend, but what we believe as Christians, if I can just try to make it as plain as possible, is that we are not fundamentally right with God. Right? The default position of humanity is not at peace with God, but at war with God. In fact, every person tries to set themselves up as God of their own lives. They decide what's right for them. They do what they want. They follow their hearts. Self-actualize. And what, what God says really doesn't have much bearing on that. And if, if God's word were to contradict us, well, we would just say, well, it's, it's not, it doesn't really say that. God doesn't really mean that. Or, I would never follow a God who did X, Y, and Z. I could never believe in a God who thought this. And the reality is, at the end of the day, you're just worshiping yourself. If God can never contradict the way you think, 
God's not your God. You are. And so, my non-Christian friend, all of us, including the Christians in this room, have walked that path. We've followed the course of the world. We've been disciples of Satan. Dead in sins, as you see there in verse 1 of chapter 2. We were dead in sins. We were doomed to eternal wrath. Wrath is what is owed to those who live in rebellion against the King and Creator of the universe. But the good news that we believe as Christians is that God became a man and took the wrath and the penalty that was due to traitors like you and me. So that when we put our faith in Him, we might have not the curse we deserve, but the blessing that only Jesus deserves. Well, how do you, you get it just by believing? Christianity is not fundamentally a religion of do this and then you'll be right with God. It is a religion of done. But what we believe is that God did not stay up on high on a mountain and say, do X, Y, and Z, get on the path and come to me and we'll, it will be good. You can get to me on your own. No, God has come down from the mountain and reconciled us to himself. We believe as Christians that it is only through the blood of Christ that we can have access to God. My non-Christian friend, you can have access to God. It is a, a real offer. You can have peace with God and His people and access to Him. If you'll just put your faith in Christ. Now you might be thinking, don't I already have access to God? Aren't I already at peace with Him? We've already addressed that, right? You're not, if what the Bible says is true, the answer to that is no. You don't have access to God. No one outside of Christ has access to God. See this pretty clearly with the kind of Old Testament restrictions. The only way somebody could access God was, was through the temple system. And even then, God was, was very kind of, very not aloof isn't the right word, but you couldn't just get right to him. There was a separateness to it. So the people had access to God, but there was, there was not the, an intense kind of intimacy. I mean, uh, God was pictured as a king in his throne room in the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest, and only once a year, would come into the Holy of Holies, into the direct presence of God. And had to follow a bunch of rules and restrictions because he, he might die. Because the Holy God could not be around sinful people. But now, what we're told in verse 18, for through him, that's Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. And so now, the point of access to the, the direct presence of God is not the high priest. It's Jesus. Jesus is the point of access by which we, we come to the Father. That old song runs in my head, right? Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory, great things He has done. I think that's the words. Um, I got the first part right. At any rate, you come to the Father Jesus the Son. And we see, you see, you come through Jesus 
by the Spirit to the Father. A wonderful truth. And it's just this truth that Jesus was trying to explain to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Do you remember that story? They're having a little debate, and she's like, hey, the Jews, they worship in Jerusalem, but, but they're wrong. My people, the Samaritans, we've got it right. We, we worship over here in Samaria. And Jesus tells her, you're, you're wrong. You're just wrong, right? Like, the Jews have it right. But furthermore, secondly, there's going to come a time when you don't worship God in Samaria or in Jerusalem. There's going to come a time when you worship through me. Isn't that just what Paul is telling us here? Jesus is the access point. It's through Jesus that we come to the Father. It's through Jesus that we have access to God. And please notice what kind of access we have. It's not just access to to God in terms of, of the king seated on his throne, though he is that, don't hear me wrongly. It's not just that. It says we have access to the Father. Remember, this adoption language from chapter 1 is not completely faded just yet. We, We don't have access to God that is limited in the way that access to a king might be limited. We have access to God like children have access to their parents. Think about that. What kind of access do children have to their parents? Full access. Right? If you're a parent, you've experienced this, right? You're going to take a couple minutes to to have a nice shower, and then there's a child in the room talking to you. Right? You're going to sit down and have a nice meal, and there's a a kid upstairs. They can't get their shirt on. Sleeping in the middle of the night wonderfully. Well, somebody needs a drink of water or to eat. Or they've had a bad dream and they're getting into bed with you. Friends, we have that kind of access. This is the access we get to God through Christ. The kind of access children have to their parents. And so we we should jettison from our mind any idea that God would be hesitant to meet with us, to love us, to care for us. Dear Christian, God loves you. His love does not ebb and flow with your performance. God, it doesn't matter if you had a hundred timeouts in a day, right? God loves you. His love is unwavering. It's true. It will not fail. Now some of you that are a little bit older, in terms of being parents, know that there comes a time, and some of you are there right now, I was talking to Randy this morning, she was talking about it a little bit, where, where your children start to, to grow up. Where there comes that day where you don't change diapers anymore, they don't need you to do that. They don't need you to, to prepare every meal they don't need you to, to take them to you know, this practice or, or that event. They, they can do it on their own. Church, listen to me. The Christian life is the exact opposite of that. 
as we grow in our Christian lives, we do not become less dependent on God. We recognize that we must be more and more dependent on God. That we are not dependent on Him enough. The more mature we become, the more like infants we become. Calling out to God constantly to, to nourish us and to hold us and to carry us. We have childlike access to God. How many, how many of you have grown out of taking advantage of that access? How many of us have become just too mature? We're independent. And before you think, well, that's not me, I want you to consider how regularly do you listen to God speak in His Word? What is your prayer life like? Is your prayer life more akin to a steering wheel or a spare tire? Peace with God, peace with one another. We come to Him through Jesus in one spirit. We have access. Do not take it for granted. Having laid the foundation for what salvation entails, peace with God vertically, peace with one another horizontally, Paul comes to a therefore or a so then in verse 19, and he says, these are the implications of your union with Christ and your union with one another. The implications of being united with Christ and united with one another is, well, everything changes. Everything changes for you politically, everything changes for you in terms of your family, and everything changes for you religiously. He starts with the, the metaphor of citizenship. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Remember, saints is just other Christians, not anybody special, those who are God's holy ones, those who have been made right with God in Christ. You are fellow citizens with the saints. What this means is that God's people are not divided based on ethnicity or race or nationality. It means that even though you and I are Americans and we love America, right? I even started drinking what's called America's coffee. It's good. A little American flag on the box. It's great. Though we're Americans, we have a citizenship that is greater than our American citizenship. It's a priority. It's our citizenship in Christ. Our citizenship in the kingdom of God, the people of God. And this citizenship must govern our lives. Citizens have responsibilities and privileges. And so we are to live in a way that is worthy of Christ. In a way that reflects the priorities of God. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if somebody looked at your life, would they determine 
that you are more committed to Jesus and His people or to your country and your politicians? What do you spend more time on? What captures your heart more? The politics of your country? Or your citizenship in heaven? Jesus' people come from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they have been united in citizenship in heaven. Jesus has broken down the walls that would divide. And to be united to Him is to be united in His people. Churches like ours are sprinkled across the globe. And all of them are little embassies of the King. They're to be little places of heaven. Pictures of the world that is to come here on earth when Christ returns and makes all things new. We're also told that our politics aren't just changed. Citizenship just hasn't changed. Also, our family has changed. We're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, Paul uses this word on purpose because he's going to kind of twist his metaphor in just a second. But household can, can refer to a family. He wants us to pick up on that. And it also can refer to like an actual building. And he's going to pick up on that in a second. But initially... What, what I want us to, to see together is that in Christ, we are members of God's household. We are siblings in God's family. We, we may not share the same parents as Christians, but we are bound together by blood. The relationship we have to one another in Christ is more intimate and more lasting even than our biological ties. The family of God will not end. It goes on into eternity. I'm not trying to make light of our family responsibilities. There's a strong and consistent command in Scripture to care for your family, your biological family, well. What I do intend to communicate is that your inclusion in the family of God has a superior claim on your life. This is why Jesus said in Mark 10, Verses 29 through 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive 100-fold. Now, that means now, in this time, Houses, brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. What's he saying? He's saying the church is family. And though following me might cost you 
all connections you have to your biological family, it's worth it. You're going to be grafted into the family of God where you will have mothers, brothers, sisters. It might cost you income. You'll lose your lands, but, but there will be other economic opportunities. The family will hold one another up. The church is a family. I think it's hard for us to get our minds around because we, we live pretty comfortably, and it's very unusual for us to come across anyone who has lost family members or relationships because of their commitment to Christ. But it was insightful when I read one pastor sharing, uh, sharing this. Not long ago, a girl from a Muslim family came to our church and began to follow Jesus. She was estranged from her family and threatened by them because she had become a Christian. And so... We gave her a home with one of our church members. And one day, one of our elders gave her away at her wedding. This, this girl knew what it was to be adopted into the family of God. She knew that Jesus was worth it. I pray that, that, that if we could peel back kind of the superficial layers of our hearts and peer into the, the deepest parts of our souls that, that we would find our greatest love is, is for Jesus. Not even our family should be able to compete with Jesus. I also want to point out another side to this. The church is, is family, and it's not just family in the sense of, hey, these terrible things might happen, and so this is your kind of surrogate family. But we do encourage one another. We're tethered tightly together. Lift one another up. We share in one another's sorrows and we enjoy one another's achievements. I think just personally, I have experienced this many times during my tenure here at Rockfish. I think most recently, one of the things that really encouraged me was a bunch of the women at the church, because they knew Chelsea's mother had passed away in the fall, came together and did a baby shower for her in the spring. They understood this is a responsibility a mother uh, usually undertakes. And Chelsea's mom was not around to do that, and so uh, you all came together and did it for her. Church is a family. I mean, I think just recently, uh, I've seen many stories. I don't, I don't know why I like this one, but you know, uh, Jenny Hicks helped the LaFleurs find a home. Now she played the role of, of realtor. I don't think it was because she's trying to get rid of them quickly. I think it's because she cares about them and wants, wants what's best for them and to love them. As a, as a church, we, we are to function as a family, and to have, have real, vibrant relationships. We, we don't want our church to be a, a cold and just a, like a department store. And friends, to belong to Jesus is to belong to his family. Like the, the fam you can't have Jesus and not his family. You can't have Jesus and not the church. You can't love Jesus and hate his bride. Christianity 
is personal, but it is never private. There is no such thing as Christianity in isolation. That idea is foreign to the New Testament. So we we ask the question though, why then do some who would profess themselves to be Christians refuse to belong to a local church? I know there are a great many reasons for this, I want to point out just a handful. I think one of the primary reasons is that people are not taught about the importance of the church, or they just don't think about it. But if you simply read your Bible, you'll recognize that the New Testament assumes church membership. You'll notice uh, there is much written to the churches. Paul's ministry and the ministry in the book of Acts is all about planting churches. The church is at the very center of God's plan. And some are, are just not taught. Secondly, others have been hurt by churches. Many an unhealthy church has done much harm. Nevertheless, the failure of churches to live up to an ideal or to care well for one another does not mitigate a Christian's responsibility to belong to a church. Too often, past church hurt is used as an excuse for church hate, and to cut oneself off from the body. Another one is, uh, I hear sometimes is, well, I belong to, to the universal church. And some of you might scratch your what, what do you mean by that? The universal church is also called the invisible church, or I like to call it the big C, capital C, church. And that just refers to all Christians at all times, everywhere. And so what they're saying is, I don't need to belong to a local church or go to worship or gather together with other people that are Christians because I have a relationship with Jesus and I belong to the big C church. You can see that this claim is spurious, right? Similar to saying, I belong to the universal gym, big G gym, but I don't belong to any local gym and I never work out. You see the disconnect. This is, this is not an argument. Your, your inclusion in Christ, your inclusion in the, the big C, invisible, universal church will be evidenced by your participation in the little c, local church, visible church. But lastly, and I think this is, is a claim I hear quite often, is someone will say, what's the difference, ultimately, if I just come to a church informally, pretty regular, and I, and I sing the songs, and I believe the theology, and I listen to the preaching, but I don't join in membership formally, what's the difference? What's the big deal? Now, I had to restrain myself on this, because I, I had like this huge list of like 10 to 15 things, and I was like, that's probably a little heavy-handed. Uh, I'm just going to go with, with, with three things here, three reasons why Christians need, in that position, need to join a church. Because there is a difference. The first one is this. Full joy comes with commitment. If you do not formally join yourself to a local church, it is not clear to anyone that you belong. If you stay an outsider, 
you do not get the privilege of participating in family discussions. You don't get to partake important roles, important family responsibilities. And you should not eat the family meal. And I don't mean some potluck after church, if we ever have one, right? It, everybody's welcome to that. The church's family meal is the Lord's Supper. And when, when we take the Lord's Supper, what's happening is, is we are remembering Christ, we're renewing our commitment to Christ, and we are renewing our commitment to one another. You, you remember, we read every week, usually it's David, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verses 16 and 17. If you follow the logic of that text, what he's saying is we who are many, I mean, this is explicitly what he's saying, we who are many are made one, and then he grounds that in, because we partake of the one bread. There's a sense in which the ordinance of communion creates and evidences the reality of our commitment to one another. So one of the ways we talk about Lord's Supper sometimes is we'll say, uh, baptism, when you're converted, you're baptized, and that's the, the doorway into the Christian household. And then the Lord's Supper is the family meal. Now, of course, we invite Christians who are members of, of local churches who believe the same gospel we believe to, to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. And, and I'm never going to, you know, if, if an atheist showed up and, and grabbed the Lord's Supper off the table and was taking it like, you know, David's not running over and like karate chopping them. It's like, no, you can't have any. But it is ill-advised. It's a dangerous thing. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 to, to eat this supper without recognizing the body, and I think this goes two ways, recognizing Christ in terms of his body being destroyed on the cross for us. I also think it goes another way, recognizing the body, meaning the body of Christ, right? In 1 Corinthians 12, right after that, he's going to say, you are the body of Christ. So to eat and drink without recognizing our connection to and our commitment to the body of Christ is to eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Now, God is gracious if you've ever done that. He, he forgives. But I would encourage you to don't take the Lord's Supper unless you are a member of a local church. It doesn't have to be this local church, but if you're a member from another local church and you're here, enjoy today. We're, we're happy to have you. But we want to recognize those who have committed themselves to Christ and His people. One of the reasons why you've heard the word excommunication. If you just break it apart, it's excommunioned. And that only happens at the very back end of church discipline. Right? And what it means is not that you're put out of the church and that you're never to come to church again. No. No, we, we want people, even people that have been excommunicated or put out because of church discipline, to attend this gathering. There's no place we'd rather have them on a Sunday morning. But what they are denied is a say in our family discussions, the ability to serve as it relates to family responsibilities, and the opportunity to share in the family meal. You want to have all that God has for you in the church? You should commit to a church. Full joy comes 
with commitment. Secondly, and this one will be shorter, body parts need a body. Logic's pretty simple. Uh, I'm going to read from Romans 12 and verse 5. We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. One commentator comments, Notice the implication. Being formed together in one body gives us an obligation. We belong to the rest of the body. It is impossible to be in Christ and not belong to others. A Christian, by definition, has a connection with and a responsibility to other Christians. If God is your Father, then His people are your family. The church isn't simply a meeting that you attend. It is a body that you belong to. And so to not belong to a church would be similar to cutting yourself off, right? You're pictured as a member of the body, meaning member like a hand or a foot, being cut off from the rest of a body. So if you were to, to cut off your foot and put it somewhere, it would die. It would not be alive. If you are not in a committed relationship with a local church, if you're not part of the body, you need to ask yourself if you are dead or if you need to repent of sin. And the way you would repent of this particular sin by joining a local church. Life and vitality come through connection to God's people who are connected to Christ. Lastly, accountability. Accountability. Matthew 18.15 says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And then Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It is hard to submit to leaders if you don't have them. It's hard to hold others accountable if you're not committed to them. It's hard to be held accountable by people that are not committed to you. Belonging to the family of God, belonging to a local church, is how we enjoy all that God has designed for us to enjoy in the church. So if you are here and you don't belong to a local church, you need to find one where you can belong and join it. And you can talk to any member here about what that looks like. There's a book in the back called What is a Healthy Church that can help you find one somewhere. But make sure that you are joined to a church. None of them are perfect, nor are you. Find one and commit. Those who are joined to Jesus are joined to his people. And Jesus hasn't just rearranged the furniture. He's changed the whole building. Which brings us to our final metaphor here in verses 20 through 22. The members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God's family, we see, has house rules. This household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And what that means, it's not built on the individuals themselves. It's built on the teaching of the foundation, on the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. God's word is the foundation upon which his church is erected. We cannot change the foundation. Many are tempted to do just that. There's this temptation in contemporary society to be blown along by the changing winds of culture and to soften those difficult things that the Bible teaches. You know them. The uniqueness of Christ. The eternality of hell. But what the Bible teaches in regards to sexuality and marriage. We are not free to change the Bible. We are not free to move the, the building of the church off the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We're not free to disconnect the building from Christ who is its cornerstone. Did you see that in verse, verse 20? Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the most important part of the foundation. It would bear the weight of the whole building and it would tie the walls together firmly. It was the great connection point. Some call it the anchor of the foundation. We cannot move away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints and still have Christianity. To abandon God's word and to, to twist it to say things that it does not say so that you might win some people to Christ is doing the work of the devil. A church that has moved off the foundation the teaching of the apostles and the prophets and away from the teaching of Christ is no church, no matter what you call it. Foundation has been laid. Believers are built on faithful teaching and held together in Christ. This is why we take so much time, Sunday after Sunday, listening to God's Word preached. Why we give ourselves to expository preaching. We want to know what God intended to say through the Holy Spirit-inspired authors of Scripture. And this is why we do our best to appoint faithful elders who will defend these truths when they are assaulted. Notice also the building grows. It's kind of an odd image, isn't it? A building growing. But this building grows in order to show us that people are always being added to it. God is building His building. He's building His church. And listen to what is said here more closely in verse 21. In whom, that's Jesus again, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, that's Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A dwelling place for God? 
Think about what Paul has said. Think, you and me, creatures, are being built into dwelling places for God, the Creator. We, we are being made into a temple. The thought of being a dwelling place for God is right next door to unthinkable. Isn't, isn't that incredible? Paul is, is not saying that God is somehow limited or restricted to space. Right? God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And so it's not like God is divided up into a bunch of little pieces and He lives in all of us and then uh, He can only be whole when we all come together on a Sunday morning. He's not limited to any kind of space. Rather, what's being said here is that God has chosen to specially be present in His church when it is gathered. To specially be identified with His church. In the same way he was in the temple. Remember our scripture reading earlier. They, they build the temple and God's glory fills the temple. His presence is specially manifested there. Likewise, it is specially manifested in his church. When we gather. When you come to this gathering, you are not coming to an ordinary event. You're coming into the very presence of God. Not because there's anything specifically holy about this main hall. Right? This, is, this is no sanctuary. Nothing holy about it. What's holy about this place and this meeting is you. What's holy about this place is the saints gathered together. And this is why when, when Dan welcomes us to service, he says not, welcome to Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, as if you've come into the, the place that is Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. It says, welcome to the gathering of Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. Rockfish Valley Baptist Church is you and me, God's holy ones, not the building. And it is in us that God dwells. This is incredible. He's present in us. He's present here now. Do you come to this gathering ready to encounter the presence of God? Is this gathering a priority in your life? Or is it a luxury? Take it or leave it. Friends, Sunday morning should be the main event of your week. When somebody asks you on Monday, hey, what, are you, what were you really excited about last week? What are you excited about this week? More often than not, your answer should be, church! It was fantastic. Well, man, the Super Bowl was this week. Weren't you excited about that? Yeah, that was great. But I gathered together with the people of God in the presence of God. I, I got to sing to God. I got to hear God's word proclaimed. I got to pray to God. I have direct access to Him as Father. Christians should want to gather together. Do you? Or after an hour or so, are you thinking of Netflix, longing for your couch? Don't settle for lesser pleasures in this life. God has offered to you himself. Do not grow out of depending on God. Do not grow out of enjoying God. Friends, the church may appear ordinary, but do not be fooled. 
The church is anything but ordinary. The church is Jesus' people. His one people. His one family. His one temple. His house. And when the people that are gathered here have been changed, their identity has been changed completely by Jesus. We were dead, and now we are alive. We were blind, and now we see. We were condemned to hell. And now we are certain of a future resurrection and life together in heaven. Brothers and sisters, know who you are. Know what Christ has done in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us here. We ask that you would bless us now as we renew our commitment to you and to one another by partaking of the family meal, the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to remember what Christ did for us on the cross now by participating in the Lord's Supper. As I read to you from God's Word, please come forward and receive your elements.